First John chapter 3, John takes a little bit of a turn tonight. Uh, he, in the first couple chapters, has been talking about fellowship and how important it is to have fellowship and maintain fellowship and what that's all about. But tonight, he sort of takes a step back and he wants to begin to talk to all of us about sonship. Because in John's mind, one can be a child of God and not be in fellowship. But there's no way one can fellowship with God if one, first of all, is not a child of God. Our, our fellowship is based on our relationship with God and being a child of God. And, and part of why now John is switching is because uh, he wants to connect the two of sonship and fellowship. And, and he's also combating the false teaching where many people profess to have fellowship with God and they really didn't. And many people have professed to be children of God and he's going to show that they're really not. Um, and we're going to get to those verses in the next couple of weeks. But tonight, I love these verses because especially if you are a child of God, it's like John is saying, you know what? I want us to stop tonight and really, really take time to smell the roses. Because too often, as children of God, we don't ponder the significance of what it means to be a child of God. And we're only going to look at three verses tonight. Verse 1 is going to remind us who we are, what we are. Verse 2 of chapter 3 is going to remind us about what we will be. And verse 3 is going to remind us about what we should be, being the children of God. So I hope tonight that this will be a great encouragement to you. I even hope that these verses tonight are verses that if you've never really maybe connected with these verses on a really deep level or whatever, that these would be verses that you would maybe write down on a three-by-five card or underline in your Bible or maybe even write if you do journaling or whatever, and that you would go back and refer to these verses over and over and over again because they are just rich with, I think, encouraging truth. Truth that, even as Nicole prayed at the end of her prayer, Truth that should transform our lives. That's why God shares His truth. It's not just to fill our heads, it is to transform our lives. So you'll notice that first of all, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John starts out with the word see. Some Bible translations may have the word behold. It means to immediately ponder... Uh, the significance of what I'm about to tell you. Give, give immediate and proper attention to something. Don't, don't, don't rush past it. And that's again one of the reasons why I think God even impressed upon me this year to slow down and not even to take too many verses at one time because so often, even as Christians, if we read or study the Bible and we move through it too quickly, we miss something. 
And so that's why every once in a while I think it's good to see the word behold in our English Bible or the word see. It means stop and really look at this because you and I all know even in the physical world if we stop and we look at something long enough we begin to see little nuances and things that we wouldn't see if we just passed by quickly. And that's what John wants us to do here. In fact, this word see comes from a root word that literally means to stare at. It's like John is saying, stop and stare at this for a while. Pay immediate, careful attention to this. Now, he's going to go on and tell us what that is. It's the love of God. And before we get into a little bit of the, you know, dissection of this, I just want to jump ahead and and say to all of us, I, I think that's important for us as children of God to, to just ponder the significance of being loved by God and being his child. And what does that really mean? And do I take time to think about that and to give it thought? And to focus on the fact that I'm a child of God. I'm one of God's children. And that's what John wants us to do here. So he says, see what sort of love the Father has given to us. The word sort is a word in the original language that speaks of the quality of something. John is saying it's not just that God loves us a whole bunch, it's that God loves us in the highest quality way possible. That His love is not just quantitative, it is qualitative. It's a high quality of love. It's almost, you know, the old uh, advertisement for the flowers about uh, when when you care enough to send the best. Do you remember that? advertisement, that commercial. Well, I I thought of that when I pondered this verse throughout the, the days leading up to this. I thought that's exactly what God did. God, when he wanted to express this quality of love, he he gave us his best. I mean, he sent the one and only Jesus Christ, the very son of God. He gave us his very Son. I mean, that's John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave us His one and only Son. It, it shows us again the quality of love that God has given to us. And by the way, this word love here, first of all, speaks about God's affection for each of us. God actually is emotionally moved in His love for you and I. Now, it's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. But there is emotion there. I mean, if God created us in His image and we're emotional beings, that's part of our makeup, then we know God is emotional too. And John wants us to understand God gets emotional about you. He loves you and I that much. I think... Part of why John could write so directly about this subject is because, remember, he's the apostle who walked with Jesus for three years while Jesus was on earth. 
I think he saw the love of God in the eyes of Jesus when Jesus looked at him. And he's going to talk about that later on. But I I don't think John ever got over that God loved him and loved him enough to make him one of his children. But that's not the only aspect of love. Because in this word, it also speaks not just of this great affection, this, this great emotion, if you will, that God has for us, but this word always speaks of action as well as affection. In fact, you can't have this kind of love, this quality of love, without action. That's why it reminds us that, that love is, is an active word. I mean, it's important that, that you and I articulate and verbalize our affection for, for those we love. It's important to say to others, we love them in some way. But if it just stopped with words and it never translated into actual actions and deeds, then that's not God-like love. That's not agape love that he's talking about here. Agape love always has action along with the verbal and, and the words and the emotions to it. And, and John goes on to say that. He said, God acted, expressed his love in that he gave. The fact that we are a child of God is a gift. Folks, it's not something that any of us could ever earn in any way. See what sort of love the Father has given to us. It's been gifted. It's it's this... It's this present that He's placed in our possession. And there's nothing we can do to merit it or earn it. We just have to receive it. I hope each of you tonight have received this great gift from the Father. And that you've received His love for you. And that you know that you are a child of God and that God deeply, actively loves you. And as I've said before, let's remember that God's love is a love that has always been constant and is always unconditional. Meaning, that no matter what we do or don't do, God's love is always there. He can never love you more than he always had. And he can never love us any less than he always has. His love is the one constant in our lives. Maybe other loves, if you will, come and go and wane and and go through periods where they're not as as vibrant and and strong and and alive and expressive But God's is never that way. It's always the highest quality all the time. That's the way God loves. In fact, He couldn't love any less. Because the Bible tells us it's His very nature. God is love. And John just wants us to stop tonight and be reminded, each of us, just how much God loves. 
loves us. That we should be called God's children. That we should carry or bear, or bear the name and be acknowledged, if you will, as a child of God. As God's spiritual offspring or, or His descendant. In a sense, every one of us as a Christian has been supernaturally adopted by God into His family. I think that's really cool, especially for for folks who have been adopted. To see that really, spiritually speaking, all of us are adopted because none of us were born into God's family naturally. We needed a second birth. We needed a new birth, as Jesus said. We need to to be born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, 7. Marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be supernaturally adopted by God and placed into the family. And I love the fact that in this word called, that we should be called God's children, that there's another great meaning to this word called. And it literally means to bring one nearer. That's why God made us His children when we, by faith, accepted Christ as our Savior. Because God wanted to bring us nearer. Think of it this way. If if someone is separated by a little distance and you call to them, there are times where the reason you're calling to them is you want them to come over and and you want them to be closer in physical proximity. You're trying to get their attention so that, so that the distance between you can be closed. That's the meaning of this word called. God called us to be His children so that He could bring us even nearer. Because obviously, as God the Creator, He has some type of, a, of an interaction with all of those that He's created. But he has a special relationship with his children. Because when you and I accept Christ as our Savior, and again, he adopts us into his family, he's bringing us even nearer. Which is why, again, John is talking about this. Because it's all about the privilege that we have then as God's children of fellowship. Of that close connection with God where we don't have to feel at a distance from God any longer. We can be very close to him. One of the passages that I'm going to be teaching on this weekend is Genesis chapter 3. And as I've been studying that for for this weekend, I was reminded again, even in our uh, study of, of Adam and Eve in the garden, that before sin entered into that garden through Adam and Eve's disobedience, that it was all about a close relationship and fellowship with God, that God would be there in that garden and He would walk with Adam and Eve every day. He would fellowship with them. They were were near to each other. There was this intimacy, if you will. And it was only after they rebelled 
that they took the place of God in a sense and said, we know what's best by succumbing to the temptation of the serpent, that that close connection and that fellowship was broken. And that's why the Bible goes on in Genesis 3 to tell us that God went looking for them because they were hiding from God after they sinned. How tragic. That's what sin does. Sin alienates us from God and from one another. And I love the fact that Genesis tells us that instead of God, because they were the only two that he had created at that point, instead of God just destroying them and starting all over, and he, well, they blew it, I'm going to start all over. That's not what God did at all. Because God loves everyone that he has created. And instead of just blowing up Adam and Eve and starting all over again, he went looking for them in the garden. Even though they were hiding from him, he's the one that pursued them. Because he, he wants that relationship. He wants that fellowship. He wants that close connection. He wants to bring us near. And even though they blew it by their disobedience, God offered them a way to come back to him in the garden and said, if you trust me now again, after not trusting me before, I'll make this right. I'll fix it because I'm the only one that can. And I'll provide a way to reconcile us again so that we can have that fellowship, that close connection, that relationship. Because that's what it was all about with God. That's why he created human beings in the first place. Because he wanted to have that kind of a relationship with us. And that's why he gives human beings a free choice. Because apart from free choice, if we were made to have some kind of fellowship or relationship with God, it would take all the joy out of it. God takes pleasure in those that He's created who want to have a relationship and fellowship with Him. And John, here in 1 John chapter 3, is just blown away and wants those that He's writing to to be blown away by the fact that God loves us so much that He called us to be God's children. And notice, too, He includes Himself in here. Even as the great Apostle John, in a sense, He's showing humility in, hey, I'm one of God's children, too. I'm, I'm nobody any more special than you. And I love what He says at the end of verse 1, or, or in the middle of verse 1, He says, Oh, by the way, and indeed we are. In other words, he's saying, we're not just God's child in name. We are God's child in reality. We really are God's child. Think about that. Knowing that we are a child of God, should have a profound effect on us every day that we live. It should change our perspective on things, our mindset on things, our outlook on things. I mean, think about even the passage where Jesus is talking to some of his followers early on in his ministry, and he says something like, he says, hey, don't be anxious for anything. My heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, he knows when a bird hits the ground. 
Do you not think that he even cares even more about you? So Jesus is trying to say, if you really believe that God is your father and that you are one of his children, do you not think that he's going to look out for you and take care of you and care for you and provide for you and protect you? Absolutely. Because he loves us with such a quality of love. And I think sometimes when we struggle and when we're discouraged and, and maybe even anxious and all that, it's we forget the quality of love that God has bestowed on us that we should be called God's child. Because if we really understood what John is saying here, a lot of the thoughts and things that we struggle with wouldn't even come into our head because we'd always go back to, but I'm a child of God. God loves me more than I could ever imagine. Notice what he says, though, at the end of verse 1. For this reason, in other words, because now we have been supernaturally adopted by God into his family and are now one of God's children, he says the world does not know us because it did not know him. And the world here just speaks about the, the mass of humanity that is alienated from God who don't have a relationship with him, who are not his children. And John is saying, now, understand a, a sort of a logical sequence here. The world did not recognize who Jesus was while he was here on earth. Who he really was. They, they didn't realize who he was. If they would have recognized who he really was, they would have never put him on a cross. They would have never killed him. He's God. But they didn't know him in that way. And so John says, so follow me in my logic. If they didn't recognize or realize who he was, and you're one of his children, then they're never going to recognize and realize who you are either. And the reason I think John is saying that is because so often, as even Christians, what do we want? We want to be recognized by the world. We want those who don't know God, don't have a relationship with Him, somehow to realize who we are. And John says, never going to happen. It's impossible for them. They, they couldn't because they're blind. They were blind to who Jesus really was and they're blind to who we really are. Sometimes even we're even blind to who we really are. We sometimes never grasp as a Christian who we really are as a child of God, much less someone who doesn't have a relationship with God. They will never recognize. They will never appreciate who we really are. So if we're looking somehow for affirmation or appreciation or recognition from the mass of humanity alienated from God, we'll never get it. John is saying that the only thing that should matter is that we are accepted by God and that we are one of His children. And that should be enough. If the world rejects us, if the world doesn't recognize us, if the world never realizes who we are, that's the way it is. Because they can't see it. Just like they couldn't see who Jesus was. 
Be okay with that, he's saying. And again, part of why he's going down this road is because the false teachers, one of their main motivations was they wanted to be recognized. They, they wanted to be have the applause of, of a mass of humanity. And John is saying, no, you've you got to make a choice. Either you're going to try to go after the recognition and affirmation and, and approval and applause of the world, or you're going to basically live simply being satisfied and content that you are one of God's children and you know Him and He knows you. And then obviously He brings us into a relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers, who we share a bond with as well because we're like-minded when it comes to who Jesus is. And obviously in that then, we can have those connections. So then he goes on in verse 2 to follow up on that by starting out verse 2 with the phrase, Dear friends, which again speaks about just being beloved. That, that John is saying even to these folks that he's writing to, and we don't know exactly who this group was, he says, you are precious to me. And I think that it's really cool that John is, is following up on what he said in verse 1 because it reminds us of the connection between you and I receiving God's love for us and us being able to really love others. I think John's making that connection here between verse 1 and verse 2. If you and I receive God's love for us and we, we ponder it, we, we live out of that love and in that love every day, then you and I can love others the way we should. But if we're somehow deficient in, in truly accepting and receiving God's love, then it's going to be really difficult for us to pour out our lives and lay down our lives for others. The, re, the way that, and the reason that we can do that, if you will, is because we know how much God loves us and He's going to take care of us and He's going to provide for us and He's going to protect us. And therefore, I can just give up my life for other people because of God's love for us. Dear friends, we are God's children now. I love that. He says, we exist at present and forevermore as God's children. That's what the word are means. We are. It means, yes, at the present we are, but we also will forever be. Which, can I tell you, that's a really strong biblical argument for once a person has become a true child of God, they always will be a child of God. That's what the Bible teaches. We are, Greek language, in the present and forevermore, God's children. You enter into that relationship with God, God does not kick out His children out of the family. You will not find those verses anywhere in the Bible. There is no verses like that where it says that God has truly accepted a child into his family 
and somewhere along the line boots him out of the family. Now again, fellowship, that can change. But relationship never can. So John goes on to say, we, dear friends, are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. In other words, the state or quality of of our existence down the road, God hasn't answered or revealed what that's all going to look like in our glorified state. God has given us some information about heaven, which, by the way, my son's going to be talking about that this Sunday. He gives us some information about heaven, enough, but he doesn't answer all the little detailed questions about what's our future life and our glorified bodies in heaven throughout eternity going to be like. We don't know all of that. But here's what we do know, John said. We know that whenever it is revealed, whenever, you know, we enter into that glorified state and Jesus appears and everything becomes apparent, notice what John says we have to look forward to. We will be like him because we will see him just as he is. John says, Here's the deal. You're a child of God. Behold that. Soak it in. Ponder how much God loves you that you are a child of God. And and think through what that means, even for you personally, how that applies. How does being a child of God change the way we live our lives and the way we look at life? We are a child of God now and forevermore. And then he goes on to say, but here's what we will be. The best is yet to come. He said, because one day, all of us in some way are going to stand face to face with Jesus Christ. And in this very unhindered, straightforward way, we're going to behold and stare at and gaze at Jesus in all his glory. Nothing's going to be held back. It's not going to be like the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus could only give his disciples in their earthly bodies a glimpse of his glory. Because if he would have shown them his full glory at that point, they would have probably imploded. Because at that point, outside of our glorified selves, we couldn't take a vision of the full glory of Jesus Christ. But John says, one day we will see him just as he is. And everything that has hindered or, or blocked our, our view of seeing Jesus in all of his glory will one day be removed. In fact, keep your finger there in 1 John. I want to take you to two passages real quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So think about this, folks. Not only should we ponder that we are a child of God, but we should ponder the fact that one day we're going to be able to see Jesus in all of his glory. So 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says to the Corinthians, for now in this state, we see in a mirror indirectly. 
But then, just like John says, we will see face to face. That's why Paul goes on to say here, that's why now I only know in part. But then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. See, John says, and Paul says, when we see him, all our questions will be answered. Because a lot of the questions that we have for God right now, really, if we're honest, are questions that really are more about who He is. Because if we really understood who God was, then we would live our lives with like, He's got it. I so trust Him. There is nothing that bothers me. There is nothing that worries me. I'm not anxious about anything. He's, look at Him. He's God. He created the universe. Folks, He created us, you and I, sitting here tonight, out of the powder of the earth. That's what the Bible says. We were created by God from dust. Look at what He did with dust. If God can do that, what can't God do? And so that's why Paul says, look, right now, we're only going to know partially. We're we're not going to have full knowledge because we're hindered because we're on this side. We're not in our glorified state yet. But here's what we get to look forward to as God's child. One day, we're going to be in that glorified state. We're going to have a body that never dies, that never is sick, that never wears out, that's never tired. We're never going to experience anything like we do here on earth ever again. And we're going to be in this perfect, sinless righteous environment forever with no sin and no crime and no violence and no harm or injury or anything or hurt ever done ever again. John says, this is what we will be when we see Him. And then Revelation chapter 1. So who is it we're going to behold face to face? What's He look like? Well, He's no longer going to be the humble Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world. No. We're going to see Him not as He appeared here on earth in His humiliation, but as He now appears in heaven in His glorification. Look at chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 12. This is who you and I will see one day. I turned to see whose voice was speaking to me, and when I did so, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe extending down to his feet, and he wore a wide golden belt around his chest. His head and his hair were as white as wool, even as white as snow, and his eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword extended out of his mouth. His face shone like the sun shining at full strength. Folks, we can't even look at the sun directly today. And one day we're going to look at the face of Jesus that shines even brighter than the sun. When I saw him, John said, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. 
But he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the one who lives. I was dead, but look, now I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Folks, this is the one we will see face to face one day. In all of his glory. And when we see him, John says, we will be like him. Now, it doesn't mean, the word like doesn't mean identical. We're not going to become gods. There are so many false religions down through the history of the world and even today that exist that teach people that they will become gods. The word like doesn't speak of identical. It speaks of similar. It speaks of resembling him. And what it's talking about is in his character. We're not going to be omnipotent. We're not going to ever be omniscient. We're never going to be omnipresent like God. We will never share the attributes that make God God. But what we will do is we will share his character. We will be like him in that way for all of eternity. And then, verse 3. Then John goes on to say, And everyone, anyone, who has this hope focused on Him, purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Chapter 3, verse 1. What we are, God's child. Chapter 3, verse 2. What we will be. And chapter 3, verse 3, what we should be. Notice that John says, Do we, first of all, have this hope? Again, the word hope in the Bible speaks of confidence of what is sure and certain. Do I have this hope of what's going to come in the future? John says, well, if we really have that hope, then it's, again, going to be a truth that transforms our lives. And notice John goes on to say that the foundation of our hope, and we sang about this tonight, that the foundation of a believer's hope rests on Jesus. Notice those words. Everyone who has this hope focused where? On Him. He is the foundation of our hope. Our hope is not in some, you know, nebulous thing Our hope is in a person. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. That's where our hope should always be. Our hope should never leave there. That should always be the foundation of our hope. Mark those words. Focused on or upon Him. Our hope rests on Jesus Christ. The old hymn. The solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's where our hope lies, in the person of Jesus Christ. And John is saying this, if you truly believe that this is your future, that this is what awaits you for sure, you're certain of this, then John says, this is what it should do. And see, this is what I tell people about prophecy. Prophecy shouldn't just fill our heads with all kinds of interesting facts about what's going to take place in the future. Prophecy, if we understand it correctly, and if we apply it correctly to our lives, should always have a purifying effect on our life. And that's what John says. If you and I have this hope focused on Him, then we have the responsibility to purify 
ourselves. The word not only speaks about cleansing our lives, it speaks about living a life that is undiluted or uncontaminated. That's what the word pure means. So in other words, it's speaking about a life of devotion, a life of consecration. If I truly believe that this is my future, that one day I'm going to stand before the glorified Christ and be changed and transformed instantaneously to be like Him, and I know that I'm going to do that one day, then that purification should actually start right here and now in the way I live every day. And it shouldn't just be in a, in a moral cleansing of living a pure moral life. Again, it's speaking about a focused life. A life that is consecrated and, and devoted to Him and to His service and to His worship. Just as He says Jesus is pure or holy. One other thing before we wrap this up tonight. I know I'm running just a couple minutes over. But I wanted to end with this. The word that John uses here for pure, that he uses twice in verse 3, is a word throughout the Bible that speaks about one who is prepared for worship. In other words, God is saying to his people, I don't want you to come in unprepared. I want you to always in your life be prepared to worship. So I want to make a real practical application of this, even in our church setting. A lot of times Christians get the idea that church really doesn't start until the pastor comes out and preaches because the first part of, of church in our service is, is the worship part. And I can, I can miss that because that's not a really, you know, that's not as important. And, and the fact that that's just, that's just used by the church just to prepare everybody to hear the word. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. See, what God is saying is that I want your worship. But you shouldn't come, I shouldn't come to church thinking, well, it's Nicole's job or the worship team's job to somehow take those first 15 or 20 minutes and get me in a good place so that I can pre be prepared to worship God or be prepared to hear His Word. No, no, no. God wants us always to be prepared so that when I come first thing, 10 o'clock, I'm already prepared to worship. So that the worship isn't trying to get me to a certain place. It's an extension of the fact that I'm already there. I've already been worshiping God all morning before I even get to church. I've been worshiping God all week. My heart is prepared. I'm just now here to worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And think about how our worship and the dynamic of worship would change even in local churches if every believer who came to church came to church with that mindset. I'm not using this time to try to get me there. I'm already there. Let's jump in and let's start worshiping God. That's what the word pure means. Always being prepared to worship. That's why. When we're in that condition, that's why we can be worshiping God throughout our day, every day. Maybe, you know, something just like, just dropping to our knees or just bowing our heads and just saying, God, thank you. You're so good to us. Thank you, God, for that unexpected blessing. God, just, you know, recognizing 
Again, the goodness of God and the hand of God in our lives each and every day. When we are undiluted and uncontaminated and focused and have our lives cleansed, then we're always prepared. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day to worship the Lord God because He is worthy of worship. Because folks, I leave you with this. Behold what quality of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for making us and calling us to be Your children. Thank You, God, that we have the hope that one day we will see the glorified Jesus and we will be glorified. And we will become like Him in character because we will see Him as He is. We won't ever have to look through a mirror indirectly. We won't have to see just partial things anymore. It will all be fully known when we see You in all of Your glory. But God, if that's true, if we really believe that, then God, help us to live a consecrated, devoted life here and now. Help us always, God, to have a heart that is prepared to worship You. May we not look at things to prepare us, but may we be prepared by our walk with you each and every day. So that at any point in our day, at any point in the week, at any point when we get together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we are prepared to worship. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey guys, keep us in prayer. I'll be keeping you in prayer. I'll be with you in spirit on Sunday. Have a great week and I'll see you next Wednesday.